Welcome to the August 19th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a report on a clinical prognostic tool that identifies which group of older, fit, acute myeloid leukemia patients may derive survival benefit from intensive induction and consolidation chemotherapy. Learn more about how pediatric acute myeloid leukemia cells connect with mesenchymal stromal cells and the potential to exploit these cell-cell contacts in AML treatments. And examine the effects of L-thrombopag and romiplostim in elderly patients with immune thrombocytopenia. Our first topic is a study entitled Genetic Identification of Acute Myeloid Leukemia Patients Older Than 60 Years Achieving Long-Term Survival with Intensive Chemotherapy by Raphael Itzikson from Hôpital Saint-Louis in Paris, France, and colleagues. Although recent advances in therapy have improved survival in younger patients with acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, patients over the age of 60 still have poor outcomes. Intensive chemotherapy, with or without allogeneic stem cell transplantation, remains the standard of care for AML, including for older, fit patients. However, only a small fraction of these patients have good long-term survival, and it would be of significant value to be able to predict which patients are likely to do well and which are not likely to do well with intensive therapy. Recurrent cytogenetic and genetic lesions are key prognostic factors in AML patients treated intensively, but the prognostic value of molecular biomarkers has primarily been studied in younger adults. The genomic landscape of AML in older patients differs from younger adults. Following earlier studies focusing on the prognostic value of NPM1, or FLT3, mutations in older AML patients, several studies have attempted to define the prognostic value of a broader spectrum of recurrent genetic lesions in this population. However, none of these studies have reproducibly identified patient subsets with outcomes contrasted enough to guide upfront decisions between intensive chemotherapies and alternative investigational approaches. In recent years, 7 plus 3-based induction chemotherapy has been increasingly challenged by less intensive options, notably the combination of hypomethylating agents and venetoclax. Future randomized studies of intensive and less intensive therapies in older, fit AML patients would benefit from specific decision tools to identify the minority of the patients in whom 7 plus 3 is unequivocally beneficial. In this study, Itzikson and colleagues examined a 37-gene panel in 471 AML patients, 60 years or older, treated with intensive chemotherapy. The objective of this prospective multicentric study was to design a simple decision tool based on these molecular markers to predict likely outcome with 7 plus 3 chemotherapy. Overall, 341, or 72.4%, achieved CR, or complete remission, or CRP, complete remission with incomplete platelet recovery, after one or two courses. Of 279 patients deemed eligible for transplant, 131 patients were transplanted, including 87 in first CR. With a median follow-up of 44.8 months, there were 207 relapses and 318 deaths, leading to a median relapse-free survival and overall survival of 14.8 
and 21.2 months, respectively. The patients were first characterized by cytogenetics as good, intermediate, or poor risk. Overall, 84 patients had poor risk cytogenetics, 339 had intermediate risk, 12 had good risk, and cytogenetics were not available in 36 patients. Compared to patients with either intermediate or good risk cytogenetics, patients with poor risk had shorter survival, as expected. Next, the authors examined molecular markers in each of these three cohorts. 37 different AML oncogenes were sequenced. The most frequent genes with mutations were DNTM3A, 28.7%, NPM1, 27%, TET2, 21%, and FLT3ITD mutations, 18.7%. There were marked differences between the mutation spectrum of patients with poor-risk cytogenetics compared to good or intermediate-risk cytogenetics, with significant overrepresentation of TP53, KRAS, SET-BP1, ETV6, and calreticulin mutations, contrasting with a significant underrepresentation of NPM1, DNMT3A, FLT3ITD, and IDH2 mutations in patients with poor-risk cytogenetics. The authors examined mutation status in each cytogenetic cohort with regard to CR rate and survival, and identified a seven-gene panel that predicted for good survival after 7 plus 3. The panel included TP53, KRAS, NPM1, FLT3ITDs with low or high allelic ratio, DNMT3A, RUNCS1, and ASXL1. By combining cytogenetic risk and mutations in these seven genes, 39% of these older patients could be assigned a tier with a two-year overall survival of 66%, 8% to a group with two-year overall survival of only 3%, and an intermediate group of patients with a two-year overall survival of 39%. The results were confirmed in an independent validation study. Overall, the authors describe a simple prognostic instrument based on cytogenetics and a small molecular panel that effectively identifies which older fit patients may derive benefit from intensive induction chemotherapy and which ones would likely not have benefit. In conclusion, the authors suggest that this model can instruct design of future trials comparing the 7 plus 3 standard of care with less intensive regimens. Gary Schiller from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA Health Sciences in California offers commentary on the study suggesting the following conclusions. First, he notes that developing molecular diagnostics in hematologic neoplasia over the last several years has had a major impact on these diseases. Second, the impact of statistical instruments that define prognosis based on outcome after intensive therapy is limited by the large percentage of older, fit patients whose disease characteristics land them in an intermediate group. And third, is that for the intermediate risk group, which constitutes a majority of older patients with AML, we await results of a prospective trial of intensive cytarabine-based therapy versus non-intensive but myelosuppressive venetoclax-based regimens. Such a study must include randomization with stratification for cytogenetic and molecular risk in order to report outcomes that include not only supportive care resources, but incidence and feasibility of allogeneic transplant and quality of life. Our next report is entitled 
targeting mesenchymal stromal cell plasticity to reroute acute myeloid leukemia course, and was conducted by Giulia Borella from the University of Padova in Italy and colleagues. By way of background, Marta Tureka from St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in the U.S. explains healthy hematopoietic cells, as well as their malignant counterparts, reside in a highly complex and dynamic bone marrow microenvironment formed by numerous cell types, including mesenchymal stem cells, or MSCs, that collectively make up the bone marrow niche. Bidirectional crosstalk between hematopoietic and stromal counterparts is crucial to maintenance of bone marrow homeostasis. However, this communication can be hijacked by leukemic cells to facilitate immune evasion and chemoresistance. Although a possible role for bone marrow stromal cells in blood malignancy was hypothesized in the 90s, an understanding of molecular mechanisms explaining how bone marrow niche alterations affect mutated and wild-type hematopoietic cells in the context of malignancy has remained elusive. The need to improve and accelerate the evaluation of innovative medicines prompted the study authors to investigate the mesenchymal stromal cell role in the leukemic niche to define its contribution to the mechanisms of leukemia escape. Here, they used an innovative three-dimensional culture model that allowed long-term AML co-culture with MSCs derived from either bone marrow of pediatric leukemia patients obtained at time of diagnosis and remission or from age-matched healthy donors. The model was able to recapitulate the unique features of leukemia niche proliferation, differentiation, immunomodulation, and their secretome. The authors found that the transcriptional profile of MSCs isolated from AML patient bone marrow was distinctly different from that of MSCs from healthy individuals in this culture system. They observed that culturing AML cells with normal MSCs alters the MSC transcriptional profile, promoting functions similar to the AML MSCs when co-cultured in vitro, thus facilitating leukemia in progression. Conversely, MSCs derived from the bone marrow of patients at time of disease remission showed recovered healthy features at transcriptional and functional levels, including the secretome. Overall, compared to normal MSCs, the MSCs derived from AML marrow had an increased ability to support the proliferation and viability of AML cells and normal CD34 cells, and also had a markedly different gene expression profile, with an increased expression of genes involved in chemokine production, inflammatory response, and cell proliferation pathways. The ability of AML cells to alter MSC function was shown to require cell-cell contact and was mediated by connexin-43 expression on AML cells. Blocking expression of connexin-43 impaired the ability of AML cells to modulate MSC function. Next, the authors looked for drugs that might impair the communication between AML cells and MSCs. A drug screen of 480 compounds identified several drugs that impair calcium signaling. One drug, lurconidipine, that blocks movement of calcium by binding to the L-type voltage-dependent calcium channel, CAV1.2, was found to impair leukemia progression in 3D niche cultures in vitro. In an in vivo model, lurconidipine synergized with chemotherapy to kill AML cells. Collectively, these results indicate that MSC plasticity, in the context of the pediatric leukemia niche, might represent a potential target to be further investigated to optimize blast clearance. Their findings in AML-PDX drug screening 
that combine the AML and MSC targeting in a 3D artificial model that recapitulates crucial physiological aspects of the leukemia niche appear promising for accelerating the achievement of robust preclinical results, instrumental for identifying innovative therapeutic approaches in childhood AML. In a commentary on the report, Dureka suggests the study extends the current understanding of MSC reprogramming in pediatric AML and provides proof-of-principle findings arguing that the bone marrow niche is a promising therapeutic target in hematologic malignancies. Our final manuscript today is entitled Real-World Use of Thrombopoietin Receptor Agonists in Elderly Patients with Primary Thrombocytopenia by Francesca Palandri from Bologna and other colleagues from Italy. Primary Immune Thrombocytopenia, or ITP, is an acquired immune disorder characterized by a platelet count below 100 times 10 to the 9th per liter and increased bleeding risk. ITP has two incidence peaks, one in children and one in the elderly. In the latter, ITP incidence increases from about 2 to 5 per 100,000 in patients aged 60 to 75 years, up to 9 per 100,000 in patients older than 75. Consequently, the number of elderly ITP patients is substantial, and their management represents a major clinical challenge, as older age is associated with increased frailty, comorbidities, polypharmacy, and worse performance status. ITP has been reported to have a more aggressive course in the elderly, with increased risk of bleeding reported at diagnosis, but also more risk of both thrombosis and infection found during follow-up. L-thrombopag and romiplostim are thrombopoietin, or TPO, receptor agonists, referred to as TRAs, that increase platelet count by activating the thrombopoietin receptor with subsequent increased megakaryopoiesis and platelet counts in most patients. Despite the overall favorable safety profile, their use has been associated with increased risk of thrombosis, particularly when pre-existing cardiovascular risk factors are present. To date, only a paucity of information is available on the selection criteria between L-thrombopag and romiplostim, the frequency of switching to the alternative TRA, and the possibility of a continued platelet response when TRA therapy is discontinued. Also, Little is known on timing, severity, and clinical management of vascular events that occur during TRA therapy. Addressing these areas of uncertainty is particularly important for the elderly. Palandri and colleagues present the results of their retrospective multicenter study of 384 ITP patients aged 60 years and older who were treated with TRAs. Their goal was to investigate the impact of older age on... TRA selection, response, and need to switch to the alternative TRA, thrombotic and hemorrhagic risk associated with TRA therapy, and finally, achievement of a sustained response off-treatment in a real-world setting. After three months, 82.5% and 74.3% of L-thrombopag and romiplostim-treated patients had achieved a response. 66.7% maintained the response. 85 patients or 22.2%, switched to the alternative TRA. In these patients, no cross-toxicity was observed, and 83.3% of resistant patients had a response after the switch to the alternative TRA. During TRA treatment, 34 major thromboses, three of which were fatal, and 14 major hemorrhages, none of which were fatal, occurred in 18 and 10 patients respectively, 
and were associated with a history of prior thrombosis and with platelet count of less than 20 times 10 to the 9th per liter at TRA start, respectively. 15.6% of patients surviving a thrombosis had a recurrent thrombosis, in all cases but one during ongoing TRA treatment. All of these recurrent thromboses happened in the absence of adequate antithrombotic secondary prophylaxis. 62, or 16.5% of responding patients discontinued TRA. 53 patients maintained the response off-treatment, which was associated with TRA discontinuation in complete response. Very old age, defined as over 75 years, was associated with more frequent TRA start in persistent acute phase, but not with response or thrombotic hemorrhagic risk. The findings suggest that TRAs are effective in elderly ITP patients with no fatal hemorrhages and with a sustained response off-treatment in a significant portion of patients. Overall, this study provides important real-life evidence that TRAs may be effective and safe in elderly patients. The risk of thrombosis, however, remains considerable, and the risk-benefit balance between thrombotic and bleeding events deserves careful evaluation of risk factors for either type of event before prescribing TRA. Further studies are needed to explore whether antithrombotic prophylaxis could be considered in ITP patients with clear indication for TRA therapy in the presence of a high thrombotic risk and no risk factors for bleeding other than ITP. Finally, after a thrombotic event, continuation of the TRA may allow the safe start of secondary antithrombotic prophylaxis. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>